Today, I am joined by Matt Campbell uh, and also by Ted Walter. Uh, Ted uh, is from IC911. Um, but uh, let's bring Matt on screen first. Welcome to the program, uh, Matt. Uh, just for anybody that isn't aware of you and your family's story and everything that's happened since 2001, uh, give us a little bit of background. Yeah, um, thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I live um, in the UK in, in, near Brighton. And my brother, Jeff, um, was killed on 9-11. He was on the 106th floor of the North Tower. And um, he had an inquest in the UK back in 2013. Um, had to have it by law because his remains were repatriated from um, the US to the UK. And, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't happy with, you know, the, the kind of going through the motions, rubber stamp, cut and paste uh, of the events of as how the 9-11 commission um saw that day and you know since then i've been trying to get my brother's inquest reopened and and there's a well-trodden path where you uh, petition the attorney general down the uh, 1988 coroner's act route um and you know through either insufficiency of inquiry or new evidence which we have abundance of which we can go into yeah. Um, we've been trying to get his um, inquest reopened. Um, okay. We seem to be blocked at every stage by uh, the various authorities in the UK. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Matt. And, and Ted, uh, just tell us a little bit about, uh, about you and, and why you're involved in this. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Um, I, uh, I've been working on the issue of 9-11 for uh, close to 20 years. And I met Matt over the past 10 years and in around 2018, uh, Matt and I started working more closely together um, on, on this project of trying to reopen his brother's inquest. Uh, and so we've been kind of discussing and collaborating and strategizing since, since that time. I know he was working on it prior to that, um, but I, I come at this from the angle of having studied the controlled demolition evidence very deeply, the evidence that the Twin Towers and Building 7 were brought down by controlled demolition. And, and I saw the... Um, the opportunity of what Matt was trying to achieve in reopening his brother's inquest is an opportunity to prove in a court of law uh, in the UK that both buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. Um, and so uh, we really we really got going in the last few years. And in 2021, Matt's family submitted their application to reopen the inquest. And uh, we've been fighting to achieve that ever since. And the attorney general is now standing in, in the family's way. So it's been, an, it's been an honor and a pleasure to work with Matt these past few years trying to achieve this. Okay, thanks, Ted. So, so Matt, let, let me bring you back at this point and, and just give us a little bit of the history of, of what has happened since uh, September 11th, 2001 uh, for you and your family. Um, well, I mean, you know, apart from obviously dealing with the fact my, my brother was murdered, um, you know, I'd say for the first 10 years, for me, it was very hard because I was obviously grieving my brother, but uh, also really fighting to um i guess sit contently um, but not contently with you know the way that the official narrative was being spun in all directions and we're not just talking about the controlled demolition of the of the towers um and you know my mum's always been very interested in in everything surrounding 9-11 and i think um between myself and her um you know we really were the ones that I've always wanted some further investigation into the uh, events surrounding my, my brother's death. Were you then uh, allowed or able or 
to take part in the actual uh, 9-11 inquiry itself? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, at that time, if, you t- if you're talking about the 9-11 Commission report, I mean, we just felt so isolated over here and powerless. Um, I mean, I started questioning stuff as early as a couple of months after the attacks. What was it that, that sparked that uh, scepticism or if it was scepticism of what happened? Um, I, I think it was really uh, the response of the US and the UK and the war in Afghanistan, and then obviously followed by Iraq. There was a, a great article written by John Pilger, the late John Pilger, um, and it was called This War is a Farce, which he wrote end of October 2001. And it was just talking about the, the madness of what we were doing over in Afghanistan, the fact that the yeah, majority of the, the hijackers were Saudi, they'd been trained in Germany and the US, what the hell are we doing, um, you know, bombing the hell out of um, Afghanistan. And and I just started to, to read everything I could um, some mainstream, obviously, um, but, you know, from alternative sources as well. Uh, I remember there was one journalist, Peter Lance. Um, I read quite a, a number of his books that he wrote. Um, and and just that feeling of unease that, you know, we weren't being told the full story um, about the events of 9-11. You were here uh, while the um, commission report was being constructed in the United States, and there was no opportunity then for any communication with that process? We certainly, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really seek um, any involvement. And like I said, we just, it was hard enough to actually get information out from the US. Um, it wasn't really reported over here um, gr- brilliantly that both the uh, 9-11 Commission um, report, uh, well, you know, the, the hearings that they had, but also the actual NIST inquiries uh, into the collapse of the buildings. Um, very, very hard to actually get information. And if you, if we, spoke with our police liaison officer, they didn't really have access to, I guess, what a lot of the American families had um, over in, in the States. Um, so it's always, it's always been difficult. It's not been an easy process to get information out of the authorities. Uh, and so are you then involved with, in connection with the, uh, the, the families in the United States that are also campaigning in this area? I, I've had some, some contact um, with some of the family members and, and indeed some of them have actually supported our application to get my brother's inquest um, reopened. But obviously, you know, they're over here, over there, and I'm over here. Um, I have met up with some UK family members who are um, supportive of what I'm doing, um, but, you know, they're, they're not willing to go public, um, which, you know, I understand, and they also don't want to reopen old wounds, etc. Aside from the reopening old wounds issue, is that because they are concerned about what people are going to say about them if they publicly support your efforts? Um, I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I, I mean, I can't speak for them. Um, I mean, some of it's just, you know, it's, it's just age. You know, some people have lost children there, perhaps in their 80s now, and it's just they want to engage in, you know. So, Ted, um, if we bring you back at this point, um, you're obviously running an organisation, ic911.org is the website. Um, mm-hmm. But what uh, what's your thoughts on on the, you're based in the United States? What are your thoughts on the campaigns that are going on over there still uh, to get some kind of further reopening of this uh, in the states? Yeah, well, among the uh, family members of the 9/11 victims, I think the most vigorous uh, campaign that is still going on here in the United States, um, with involvement of uh, families overseas as well, is is the lawsuit um, against 
uh, Saudi Arabia and Saudi Saudi officials for um, you know largely for their assisting the alleged 9/11 hijackers. Um, you also have families like Matt's um, who are you know who are you know clear that the buildings, uh, the twin towers, were brought down by way of controlled demolition. Who are in their own in various ways campaigning, trying to raise awareness about that. But that's you know a little more. You know, that's not in the sort of, sort of the mainstream, although many families are aware of that um, or, or believe that the buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. Um, so, you, you know, so you have families like Bob McIlvain, who and Matt mentioned that there was a handful of family members who have supported his family's petition. Um, Bob McIlvain is a father who lost his son, Bobby, um, and, and there's a legislation, draft legislation named after his son, the Bobby McIlvain World Trade Center Investigation Act that um, Bob and uh, architects and engineers from 11 Truth, uh, another organization in this space, uh, have been trying to uh, get, uh, you know, entered uh, or, or somebody in Congress to sponsor for the last several years. And that would set up a special committee uh, to reinvestigate the destruction of the three buildings on 9-11. So there are, there are efforts like that. But, you know, as Matt mentioned, as time, as time goes on, uh, people, people need to move on. Um, and uh, you know, so so th- things sort of ebb and flow. Uh, I would say, in, in my view, right now, Matt's effort to reopen his brother's inquest is, you know, perhaps the most most important and promising thing that is happening on this front, as far as families, family members attempting to reopen the investigation uh, in various ways. Um, you also have all sorts of, you know, public awareness raising happening in the United States and across the world, um, which you know, which also ebb and f- ebbs and flows over time. Um, and I think right now we're in a particularly active period of people, um, you know, of gaining traction uh, within the public consciousness um, about the official story of 9-11 being untrue. And I think we've seen a burst of, a burst of energy over the past year uh, in terms of more people talking about this issue, more people being willing to challenge the official story. And, I, and so I really hope that that continues to grow. And I think Matt's effort can be a big part of that. I mean, I think uh, I asked you this the last time we spoke, but I I just want to touch on it again, if we can, because, um, I mean, obviously it it is something that happened in 2001. Many many people uh, around today were not even alive at that stage. Um, What kind of engagement is is there with people that that won't remember the day itself? Well, I think we we tend to see that that those younger uh, younger generation is often more open-minded um, about what, you know, looking at the facts of what really happened that day, uh, they may not have as, as emotional of a connection to it. Um, but they are very open-minded about it. At the same time, they're seeing things in the world today that really bother them. Um, you know, what we're seeing happen in Gaza, what we're seeing in Ukraine and really across the world. And, and, um, this sort of military, um, the military industrial complex kind of going full blast right now. And, um, I think young people, Especially with what's happened in Gaza in the last four months, are um, seeing are, are seeing that, and and it's probably well, I'd like to think at least making them more interested in understanding what's happened over the past few decades. Um, and of course, nine eleven was sort of a, a pivot point, a turning point um, as far as the U.S. empire and its efforts to um, you know remake the Middle East, which it's continuing um, today. So yeah, I see a lot of open mindedness from younger people even though not as emotional of a connection. That was going to be my next question. Do you think there is an appreciation about how significant that day was with respect to so much of the geopolitics that's happened since? 
I would like to think there is. Maybe I'm just projecting it, but I think that there. I think that there is an appreciation. I, I think um, you know some people talk in terms in terms of the war on terror being over or that period ended when we left Afghanistan. Um, but I think that that's not that compelling. And I think people realize that the events of today are, you know, were very much set in motion 22 years ago. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that there's, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that what we're, we're seeing the continuance of the U S empire that, that really went into full overdrive at that time. So I think a lot, I think most people who are paying attention to these events are making that connection, whether they're willing to take the next step and truly question the official story of 9-11 is, 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 it varies. And of course, that's our job is to make sure that as people um, are active around this, active around trying to end the, the aggressive and immoral actions of the U.S. government and its allies, um, that they look at 9-11 skeptically and realize that, that um, the, the, the fraudulence of the official story of 9-11 is it could be a huge asset in undermining public support for um, for what the U.S. government is, is currently doing and has done over the past two decades. Yes. Okay, so Matt, uh, let's come back to you. And uh, so take us through the stages that you've gone through up, up to date, because uh, obviously on uh, uh, yesterday's UK column news, we mentioned the fact that the Attorney General has turned down your latest uh, attempt to get an inquest reopened. But Start at the beginning and just take us through the steps uh, that got us to this date and, and the excuses that have been used up until now. Yeah, so um, we submitted a, a two and a half thousand page um, application to the Attorney General back in August 2021. And um, yeah, I mean, they, they eventually got back to us 22 months later. This is June last year um, with a very kind of very short um, letter that really didn't give any reasons for refusal um, and certainly the ones that they gave were unlawful they certainly weren't applying the tests that they're supposed to apply to what we had submitted and what we'd argued which is you know insufficiency of uh, inquiry and um, new evidence which was not seen at the first inquest of um, you know explosives controlled demolition etc um, we then had only really one option which was to apply um, to the High Court and threaten litigation against the Attorney General. You have three months from when uh, an official decision is made. Um, and so last summer, we uh, amazingly managed to raise enough funds to engage the barrister again to prepare the full grounds which were passed on to the Attorney General. And they, I think, were so aware that they were going to lose in the High Court, they Rather, I mean, I think it's unheard of. They withdrew their um, decision they made last June and said, which they're allowed to do, um, and then we're going to make a new decision. And you know, I must admit, I was pretty confident um, towards the end of last year that we would get permission granted. And um, anyway, uh, they came back beginning of, of this year with yet another um, refusal, similar but different, and I'd say different in... They're not better arguments. They're just making more arguments without actually making arguments as to why they've refused our um, request for to reopen my brother's inquest. Um, I mean, Ted can go over in a bit more detail because he's a bit more up on the legal stuff. But it's just it's just frustrating. They haven't given any good reason as to why my brother's inquest can't be reopened. 
Um, you know, it's it's lawfare at its best. So we're now in this position again, whereby, um, you know, and this I think would be the final time. Again, we have to try and apply for judicial review in the High Court, threaten litigation against the Attorney General, um, and and you know, if necessary, take it into the High Court. And and I think we'll, is where we'll win. They they don't have any, they don't have a leg to stand on with their arguments. Um, it's it's more of the same, and so for the, all the reasons that they obviously backed down um, last year, I think they're going to back down again. They're just doing that usual thing in lawfare, which is they're trying to exhaust you, time wise, effort wise, energy, and and obviously most importantly, um, money. And frankly, it's disgusting. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, assuming that that a um, a uh, an inquest eventually does happen, what what are you um, expecting from that what kind what kind of process would that be well i mean i think we've we've kind of estimated it'd be sort of a two to four week um process in court because there's a lot of evidence to go over i mean i would hope that i mean obviously by this stage the original inquest has been quashed so it's basically it's open it's an open court and so it's for the coroner to look at our evidence we would hopefully have our experts in either in person or you know online our eyewitness testimony, um, uh, witnesses actually appearing in court and, and making the case for them to, to look at what, what evidence is out there that, you know, actually explosives were used to bring down those towers. And it wasn't just the plane impact and, and fires that, that did that, um, which obviously has, you know, massive um, ramifications for the kind of what, that in, what that's going to lead to, you know, should that um, verdict be. Um, decided so ted where where would you hope that this did lead to if if such a verdict was arrived at yeah so and and just to make sure that everyone's clear the 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 their official conclusion that the coroner uh delivered in 2013 was that uh, jeff died because the impact of american airlines flight 11 caused the building to collapse and thus took his life and so there's other things that are stated in the official conclusion but that is the specific thing that the Campbell family is challenging is the cause of the collapse, which wasn't actually, there was zero evidence presented at the first inquest uh, or even assertion as to the cause of the collapse. And that's one of the one of the two prongs of the Campbell family's case is to say that there was insufficiency of inquiry. There was actually no, the coroner has stated a conclusion for which zero evidence was considered during the inquest. It's it's pretty open and shut case, in my opinion. Um so what do we hope come from that? Well, you know, this is there's no there's no automatic legal ramifications that come from an inquest. And I think people in the UK will understand even better than me kind of what the purpose of an inquest is. It's sort of it's its own legal function, which we, we don't actually have here in the United States. Um, but you're sort of legally establishing the cause of death doesn't trigger any sort of criminal investigation immediately. It doesn't, um, you know, any sort of inquiry It all from there. It all depends on. Um, you know, what people make of it, you know, whether the, whether Matt and other families in the UK then want to c- campaign for there to be a larger inquiry, whether families in the United States um, hear what has happened, um, hear that a family in the UK has got a new request and, and established that uh, the Twin Towers were brought down by controlled demolition. I think that'll, cr- it's, it's, it's nothing automatic legally, but I think that that will create waves. Um, I think that that news will spread across the world rapidly and, and have, and reverberate and I think, in particular, with the the nine eleven families, it will it will resonate. But I think 
as well, the, you know, the independent media um, and even the mainstream media um, will take a great interest in this in this finding. And I think it will that would be a turning point. I think that would greatly accelerate um, the public's um, interest and desire in kind of fully reopening uh, investigations into what happened on 9-11. What, what, is, what are the next steps? I mean, what, uh, where do we go from this point? You've had this latest letter from the uh, Attorney General. You've issued a statement. I take it, by the way, there's been zero interest from mainstream media on this? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, yes. I'm hoping that, that there is some interest um, from some papers that have previously covered uh, my case. Um, but yeah, I mean, the next steps, we, it's, so, it's so frustrating, you know, after they sat on our initial application for 22 months, you know, every single time they've, they've made this decision and an unlawful one, and we wish to challenge it, by law, we only have three months um, to challenge that in the High Court through uh, the judicial review um, process. So for us, that's a, a drop dead deadline of uh, the 3rd of April. So if we miss that and we don't submit to the High Court by then, um, that's it. We, we have no way of appealing <clears throat> or challenging uh, what the decision that the Attorney General has made. Um, obviously, we need funds to do that, to, to engage uh, the, uh, a barrister, the same barrister, Nick. Um, and we need those funds by um, really by the March, March 1st, which will give him enough time to do what he needs to do to prepare the grounds for us to go through that process again to threaten litigation with the Attorney General. So um, right now we're, you know, in the middle of trying to raise, um, you know, significant funds so that we can actually challenge again the unlawful decision, irrational decision that the um, Attorney General has made. Uh, and I mean, does, does the uh, possibility of a general election around that same time, does that uh, cause problems? Or does, it, does this process happen no matter whether who the attorney general happens to be? Yeah, I mean, I mean, even though um, obviously it's a uh, an MP who's the the current attorney general, um, yeah, and it, it doesn't affect our timeframes or what we have to do. We still have to work within those um, those timeframes that are, are set in stone, um, regardless of of what's coming down there. Right, right, so so there's no opportunity just to wait for for a change of government and see what the next one does. No, that's that's pity. Right, okay. It seems really unfair that you've actually got someone who is an elected politician blocking our right to have a, a fresh inquest. It just seems inherently wrong. Whichever party, I don't care. It just seems wrong that they have this power, uh, and that's why I think it's really important that. We have something independent, as far as it can be independent, um, in the in through the court system to actually challenge their unlawful decision. They shouldn't be able to get away with it. Yeah, Ted, do you have something you wanted to add there? Well, just to, yeah, to add on to first what Matt was saying just now, I think that to me, for, as an outsider, this idea that the attorney general has so much power, somebody who's an MP uh, has this legal function. And is you know singularly decide whether or not to grant the family um, the authority to apply to the high court for a new inquest is mind-boggling to me. I don't understand why the law would not simply be that the family applies directly to the high court, which has I think a greater responsibility to you know interpret the law correctly and rule in a, in a non-political way. So that's mind-boggling to me. But that's what it is. I see in many other facets, the attorney general 
in the in the in for England and Wales has this type of this type of authority. Um, I was going to say, you know, once once this process runs its course, and hopefully we get to the end that we want to get to, and I'm and I remain optimistic that we will. Um, you know, I think we always you always have to look at other other um, be creative, and if and if we end up not prevailing, you know, look at you know well. What opportunity is there to try this again if there's a more favorable administration? You know, one of the reasons why this took so long, or you know, even though we really, I started discussing with Matt seriously back in 2018, was that we were waiting and, and thinking that Jeremy Corbyn um, might be uh, elected uh, into power during that period of sort of 2018 to 2020. And obviously, I don't know the British politics that well, but that was our sense. Our sense was that the Corbyn administration would be much more favorable to this application, and so we were sort of waiting. And then that didn't materialize. So we said, okay, let's go ahead with it. You know, we don't want to wait too long here. Sorry, I'm trying to block the light up behind me. Um, but so if, if this ends up being denied by the courts, but there happens to be a more favorable administration in the future, I think it should be explored again. You know, I, I don't know what the law says about just trying the same thing again, but um, I think you have to, you know, at a certain point, maybe you grow tired, but I think you have to keep being creative and looking for new opportunities if this, if this, if this effort doesn't pan out the way we hope. Look, Ted, I'm, I'm going to have to raise this point because there'll be many, many people will will ask about this uh, whenever whenever they see this uh, program, um, mm-hmm. and that is with respect to the controlled demolition issue. Of course, within the 9/11 movement itself, the people that are that are calling for a fresh look at this, uh, there's some disagreement about what actually brought the buildings down and the issue of controlled demolition versus other methods. Um, how do you how do you deal with with that sort of uh, um, disagreement within a group of people that really everybody needs to be on side and and helping with this? Yeah, I mean, my my overall response to that is, <clears throat> especially in the context of trying to reopen an inquest, is to not quibble about the specific technology that was used to unnaturally destroy the buildings. Um, the, the question is whether or not American airlines flight 11, um, the impact of that and the subsequent fires brought down the North tower. That is what we're challenging. And, um, we, the, the scientists and experts that, that I work with, that Matt is affiliated with, um, they're, they're very much responsible for developing the body of evidence that says that, uh, thermite and nanothermite probably combined with more conventional explosives were used to destroy the buildings. That is what is, and, and, and that, that is very clear from the science, the science that's been done from the papers that have been published, um, the extreme temperatures, uh, the very clear signature of, of thermite and nanothermite, um, in, in, in the dust, uh, in the, Previously, previously melted steel beams that were pulled from Building Seven and the Twin Towers, um, it, like to me, that is incontrovertible. Whether there's other technologies involved, um, I tend to be skeptical of that. But um, again, I, fi- I ultimately see that as quibbling over what specific technology was used, and I think that that whole debate has been um, magnified and accentuated, po- possibly by people who don't have um, the best interests at heart. Uh, Ultimately, it's about whether the building collapsed naturally due to the airplane impact or whether it was brought down intentionally um, by people um, who wanted to bring down the buildings and were able to do so.
Yes, I think that I think that's a very reasonable point, and uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, Matt, the the outcome of this is in order to to at least get to the point of being able to say to people, uh, look, this was not an airplane, uh, the, the result of an airplane crash. There was something else went on here, uh, and uh, once we get that established, then we can look in more detail at what the actual process was uh, once the collapse began. Uh, and I think you said uh, on the UK column news that, in fact, uh, the NIST inquiry only went up to the point of collapse. It didn't look at the collapse itself. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. Uh, you know, and I mentioned um, on that news report, you know, the, the bizarre situation that the Attorney General is relying on a report that doesn't actually address our new evidence, doesn't actually um, go into how the buildings collapsed. And... On top of all that, it was never put in front of the coroner in the first place. You know, that's just completely the wrong application of, of law the Attorney General's um, applying. It's, you know, um, just one of the many things that are just so frustrating with, um, you know, the response that the Attorney General um, is, is giving us. Can you say a little bit more about the new evidence? Ted's probably in a better position to, to talk about that, to be honest, off the top of his head. The Nick Stanage, the barrister, and Matt and I worked together for about a year to put together this um, package of evidence that's 2,500 pages um, that comprises um, expert witness statements from six um, six experts, as well as five eyewitnesses, um, actual people. Four of them were first responders who were there. Another was um, uh, in the, you know an occupant in the buildings, um, and and we have testimony from them that that reiterates what had already been documented since 9-11, but they were just reiterating their testimony that had already been documented and stating that they would be willing to testify at a new inquest. So, you know, it's amazing to see the letter from the attorney general say, expert and eyewitness evidence of controlled demolition is not credible. I don't know how you call these four first responders who are testifying to witnessing explosions, not credible. Um, but so that's a piece of it. Um, we have the um, pro- probably a, a couple dozen um peer-reviewed papers, many of them that were published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies, uh, which is part of the International Center for 9-11 Justice. Um, we have the, the um, report on World Trade Center Building 7 done by engineers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Again, the Attorney General is just summarily dismissing this report as being not credible, even though it was done by PhD engineers at, um, at a university in the United States, um, and so on. So <clears throat> we've also put that alongside the scant um, statements that have been made by NIST and by engineers um, who uh, support the official story of what of how the buildings came down to show that the other side, both NIST and other other engineers who support the official story, don't actually um, engage with the evidence. And it, the, in none of, as Matt mentioned, none of the evidence that is presented in there, the evidence of incendiaries, of thermite, um, looking at the dynamics of how the towers came down, NIST doesn't address any of that in its report. Um, at best, it addresses some of it in very short FAQs. And so we provided those FAQs as part of this application to show just how little the the other side, NIST, has to say about this evidence. Um, so overall, that's sort of, in a nutshell, what's what's in the um, 2,500 pages that was submitted. Yeah, is, is, is that evidence uh, private to, the, to this effort, or is that evidence available for people to see at the moment? I don't think anything from it, I mean, almost nothing from the application is private aside from statements from um, Matt's, members of Matt's family, the other 9-11 families uh, who, who supported the application. Um, 
but most of the documents, the evidence itself is all publicly available um, evidence out there. Um, the application itself, we have not um, publicly disclosed. I think that's that's sort of the, the common practice, the way things are done in the UK. Um, and um, is, is that an application like this, you would not um, you would not divulge to the public, at least at this point, it's sort of private to the attorney general. But all the actual evidence in that application is publicly available. Uh, and Matt, uh, if, if this uh, effort for judicial review is refused, um, what, uh, this, this, perhaps this specific process comes to an end, but do you have any idea what, what you might do afterwards? Hmm. We, I mean, there is actually one other step, which I think is the Court of Appeal um, that we can go down. But um, I don't know. I mean, perhaps that's a, a question to ask. <laughs> should we be in that situation uh, a few months from now? Um, you know, my, my dad's part of the Motley Rice um, Saudi lawsuit. I'm still very interested in what's going on at Guantanamo Bay, the Saudi lawsuits, etc. I, you know, I'm never going to stop thinking about you know my brother and and 9/11 and knowing what I know has been covered up. Um, you know, that's not going to change for me. Um, I, I can only hope that at some point. Somewhere down the line, this is if we fail, um, you know, I can be of some support to another family member who wants to try and do the, the same um, same thing. I mean, although it's been a long time since um, new remains have been identified uh, of any UK victim, you know, let alone anywhere anyone else. I mean, potentially, if someone is identified and their remains are repatriated back to the UK. Um, you know that that's one route where actually they have to, by law, have an inquest. Um, you know that's that's one way in which I could get involved and um, would certainly support any um, family that um, wanted to go down that path. Can I just ask you about yeah. that statement? Uh, because yeah. where where would remains be? I mean, are, this is twenty twenty four. This happened in two thousand and one. Are you saying there's still remains that have not been identified and returned to their families? Yeah, I mean, there's about 21,000 fragments um, of people um, found from the World Trade Center um, area. Um, I think about 7,000 are still not identified. You know, uh, um, about 5,000 of them are no bigger than an inch. You're talking tiny fragments of, of people. Um, and so even though you know, the DNA techniques have been in, improving over the years, um, the you know the rate at which identification doing uh, happening, let alone new identifications of you know new people. Um, it, it's it's trickled down now to you know a, a couple of months. Um, you know they're not going to give up. They're going to keep trying to identify remains. You know I had four tranches of my brother's remains identified over um, a period spanning uh, eleven years. Um, you know so yeah, I mean there are people who. Sorry, there are still remains and there is still a chance that new people uh, may be identified. I think the last one was a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it, it is almost like less than one a year now. Um, See, that's, but, that's something I didn't know about. I, I thought that by this stage, uh, that work would have been completed. So, so is, this because, is this taking so long because there's basically no funding going to this process at this stage? No, no, they, they have funding. It's, it's because of the degree of fragmentation and the quality of the, the remains. I mean, one of the things that, you know, has really 
hit home to me is the degree of fragmentation. And, you know, I remember a, um, an article I read um, from a forensic pathologist who was an expert in, um, you know, what happens when, when people are blown up with explosives. And, you know, complete fragmentation, disintegration of the body occurs the closer your proximity to um, explosives. I mean, I know, for example, that there are some people um, on the same floor that my brother was where they've been found sort of 85, 86% whole. Um, and yet most people from that floor have a high degree of fragmentation. We, we found no more than about 3% of my brother's um, body. And that's very common for a lot of people. You know, you're talking uh, on average seven or eight body parts, tiny fragments per individual that's been identified. Wow. Right. Uh, Sorry, Ted. Yeah, I I just want to add to that, that 1,100 victims have not been identified out of the sort of 2,600 or so who died at the World Trade Center. 1,100, about 40% have had no identification, no, no, not even a tiny piece of their body has been identified and returned to the family. So, um, which is astounding and, and it shows you the level of fragmentation that occurred that clearly would not happen in a natural building collapse. Um, but when you think about what Matt was saying before, yes, if a British victim is identified and, and repatriated, the, the remains repatriated back to the UK, it would trigger a new inquest. We're talking, you know, how many, how many are unidentified still of the British victims? Maybe 50. So 50 out of 1,100 would sort of be your probability of one of those unidentified, not newly being identified and being British. Um, so, you know, it's sort of a remote chance, especially since they're only identifying one or two people a year now. But, you know, it's not impossible. That's why, I mean, I think it's important to get the word out of what we're trying to do so that, it, you know, if it does come to that, it will encourage someone to, to come forward and maybe try and contact me. I have to admit... Uh- Excuse my ignorance, but I had not appreciated that, and and I'm not aware. Uh, either of you want to comment on this? I'm not aware that this has um, been pointed out to anybody in mainstream press or at all over the last uh, twenty years. About um, someone coming forward, um, I'm unlikely to find out that there's going to be a new inquest. I mean, rather astonishingly, that that inquest that was held in 2013 with uh, nine other victims as well as my brother there was nothing in the press it was that you know the largest uh, terrorist attack on british people abroad in living memory and you know this was the the official inquest into their death there was nothing reported whatsoever in any newspaper in your search today you'll find nothing about that 2013 inquest so you know one of my concerns is uh, you know not finding out that someone actually has had um, further remains um Identified, sorry, uh, remains identified and repatriated. And I'm no longer in contact with the police liaison officers. They kind of withdrew that facility about five, 10 years ago. Um, so I don't know through them you know, if, if someone does get identified in the UK and repatriated back. Yeah, I, Mike, I was wondering if you were just speaking to, you, you're, you were surprised to hear about the number of people still unidentified. Yes, yes, that- because because that that uh, you know I I followed this story uh, from the beginning, not in the same kind of depth as either of you, of course, but yep. uh, I, I have followed this story, of course, since the big since since it happened, um, yep. and and I'm afraid that fact has has completely gone over my head. So so uh, 
But my point here is that I haven't seen anything in any kind of mainstream press that's even going near this topic. Yeah, yeah. What you will see is it's about one or two people a year are identified and um, one or two victims. And the media in the U.S., you know, small sort of like local news outlet will say, oh, there another victim was identified, maybe on ABC News, which nobody actually goes to their ABC News website. So it's like here, it's there, it's documented, but there's no discussion of it. And the article just, again, just assumes that it's pretty normal that there would be 1,100 people that still haven't been identified. And oh, we've just, we've just identified a new one. And there's no, no deep thought into the causation of what would actually cause so many people, their bodies to essentially be pulverized um, and, you know, and, and vaporized. So yeah, it's, it's kind of astounding. Um, and, that, and that more attention is, and I think more attention is not given, given to it because of the implications, because it is yet another, you know, clear indication of what really happened, of what really brought down the towers. Yeah. And, and I mean, Matt, I appreciate you say that it is still funded, but it seems to me with that, with 1100 people still not identified, it's not funded enough and it should be a heck of a lot more than two people a year being identified. But anyway, uh, look, let's, let's, uh, let's leave it here, Matt. Uh, um, you said earlier you've got you're needing to raise uh, some funds for um, the next step. Uh, just tell us how you, how people can help with that. Yeah, so I mean, we have a, a crazy target of trying to to raise sixty thousand pounds by the first week in in March. Um, we're doing it through a, a crowdfunder um, a UK website, but the easiest way of of getting there is if you go on uh, Ted's website ic911.org. Um, you'll see there's a link to the inquest and the crowdfunder appeal. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, last year when we went through uh, this process, you know, it, it almost came down to the wire. I think, you know, seven, eight days before our deadline came up, we managed to raise the funds. So I'm, I'm still optimistic that we're going to reach the target. Because, um, you know, if we don't, like I said, the cutoff point, that's it. We, there's no way back for us um, in order to, to get this evidence of controlled demolition into a court of law. That amount of money is needed on that first day. It's not that you could raise half of that initially and, and continue the campaign through March and April. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's because we have we engage the barrister through direct access. You have to pay them in advance up front for a set piece of work. Uh, and obviously, you know, we've got to submit this, uh, this filing no later than 3rd of April. So, you know, we're talking a, a good three weeks uh, if not more of of works required, so that's why we need the funds by, um, you know, the first week in March latest. Yeah. we could. I would say we could if we raise forty eight thousand pounds, which is the initial fee for the what the work the barrister has to do in the month of March. Um, it could we we probably would be able to go forward, but the other the other twelve because it's sixty thousand pounds total, the other twelve thousand pounds would really need to be raised by the end of March, but. Pretty much, you know, the large share of it definitely needs to be raised by March, March 1st. Matt, you were going to say something. There's a separate chunk of work to do mm-hmm. with the actual submission uh, to the high court. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's expensive. <laughs> That's all I can uh, summarize it as. But yeah, yeah 48,000 is the initial phase. If we hit that, that's, that's great because we then are able to, to start the, the threatening of litigation process against the attorney general. You know, this is somewhat tangential, but I just want to point to the the case of David Miller 
the professor who was sacked by University of Bristol for his um, anti-Zionist views, you know, he was successful just a few days ago. He prevailed in his employment case. And, you know, his 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 attorney fees were at least 100,000 pounds, if not more. Um, and, and he's working to raise that, you know, to back pay some of those fees. Um, but it's just an, it's an example of, A, how expensive this kind of litigation is, um, but B, how sometimes it's possible to prevail um, when, you know, when truth is on your side and when, when enough people come together. Um, so I think, you know, I just want to take inspiration from Professor Miller's case and, and believe that we can achieve the same thing here. Yeah. And, and I would just say, you know, we're always encouraging these types of, of, the, of initiatives uh, for a lot of people to, to, to give a little. So we don't want, you know, I mean, obviously, if somebody's going to come along and fund the whole thing, that would be absolutely fantastic. But at the end of the day, it requires uh, more likely to require a lot of people just to, to give a little. And, and so that should be absolutely achievable. Um, okay, well, look, let, let's leave it there for now. We will, of course, uh, make uh, links available uh, in the show notes for this interview um, for for everybody to to help if they possibly can. Uh, I'm going to say thank you very much to, to Ted Walter and especially Matt Campbell. And uh, we would like to wish you all the best, Matt, uh, and hope that uh, that you succeed with this. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching today. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.